we are in chapter 25. So uh, if you guys are keeping track, we are now sufficiently more than halfway done with Exodus. We could, you could celebrate that. We're working through this book. Um, and guys, we're going to be building off of where we were last week, uh, just to give you the big picture recap of where we've been going. We've seen the people in slavery. We've seen them being delivered, and now they're in the wilderness. God is teaching them what it is to be his people. He's been giving them the law, showing them who he is, showing what he desires of them. And then last week, we got to this, this very beautiful picture, and I didn't point this out because I did not realize this until actually this week. But chapter 24 is right in the middle of two sections of the law. So there's, there's this trick that the ancient Hebrews would do when they would write where they would kind of embed stuff right in the middle of the story. And so God has given part of the law, and then you get a pause. We saw chapter 24 last week, and then we get a little bit more of the laws, but it's a different focus. And right in the middle is this picture of God having a picnic with his people. We talked about last week how blessed it is for, for us to actually eat and drink in the presence of God and, and what, that, what that means for us. And it, is, it was really cool to get to see a picture of this is what God is after, right? This, this is what he desires of, of us, and it's, it's trust. And we said, what does trusting God look like? It looks like him leading us to adopt his image as our own and to live life in his presence. And we left off with this talking about, okay, we need to be able to live life in his presence. I feel like most of us would want that. So what does that part look like? And this is where Moses is going with over the next several chapters. Uh, and, and guys, I, I promise that's where he's going. Because as we read the word today, it's probably not going to sound like that to most of you. Um, the engineer in me appreciates a good set of blueprints. And some of you guys may appreciate good sets of blueprints that say this is where this goes and this is where this goes and this is what this looks like. Some of you hear blueprints and you're like, just tell me what it means. Uh, this chapter, at least today in Scripture, is, is going to be it's gonna sound to you guys like we're reading blueprints, okay? So I, I invite you, if, if you're the type of people that look at blueprints and be like, I don't understand what this means, just get to the end. Uh, sit and, and listen to it with me. I, I do love a good set of blueprints. And there's, there is so much embedded in the blueprints that I, I was like, we, we're going to want to look at this together today, okay? So... You're going to hear a lot of, of building instructions, and, and I promise there's a lot that's deeply tied in here. So we are in chapter 25, beginning in verse 1, and here's, here's where we're going this morning, guys. As you read the blueprints, there's going to be two questions that Moses is attempting to answer. One of them is, what does living in God's presence require us to do? And then the, uh, the flip side, what does God promise in return? Okay. So as you read through the blueprints, it might not jump out at you. So you know, this is why we come together and we study the word. We'll unpack it. But we're going to start to see a little bit of what do we do to live in God's presence? What does that look like? And this is not the full answer today, but, but this is going to be our beginning. So our, our starting point, living in God's presence requires a sacrifice of life. So just as we're reading here, okay, what God is asking of me is a sacrifice of my life. And what he promises in return is his righteousness, his presence, and his life. Well worth the sacrifice. So here we go. Chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. 
The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, goat's hairs, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside shall you overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold that goes around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on one side, two rings on the other. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings of the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles remain in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece of the mercy seat you shall make them the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel." You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it a handbreadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings, you shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. And lastly, in verse 31, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms, with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall still be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, 
and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light to the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold, and it shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold, and see to it that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. God, we are grateful uh, that even in what feels like very long lists of details, Father, you are extremely intentional about the words that you chose to reveal yourself to your people. Father God, we come to you this morning as your people, kind of watching this story unfold at a distance, but God desiring to be drawn in to the same narrative of redemption and reconciliation that you've had throughout all of history, Father. So as we, as we walk through this this morning, God, just show us more of who you are. God, show us more of who we are in light of that. Uh, and just help us, help us to understand what, what you are trying to communicate. It is in your holy name we pray. Amen. All right, you still with me after the blueprints? Thank you for, for bearing with it, church. There's, there's just a lot of really cool stuff in here, okay? So the first, the first piece of this chapter, Moses, if you remember at the end of chapter 24, he's been telling, God has been telling Moses and the people about what it'll be like for him to be in his presence. And at the end of 24, God actually brings Moses up on the mountain into his presence, okay? So right now, Moses is with God, and Moses has just been telling the people of Israel, hey, guys, God wants us to be with him, and now God is saying, okay, Moses, now let me show you what it is to be with me. So this is, this is why these directions, they're, they're, they're very uh, poetic. They kind of repeat themselves. Some of you guys are like, is he still on the table or the ark? I understand that there's a lot of repetition in there, but, but God is really trying to hammer home for his people. This is what it looks like for you guys to be with me. And it starts with the first part of our main point this morning. Living in God's presence requires a sacrifice of life. And I, I try not to do this too much in the sermons because it's some of you, you're like, okay, cool. And others are like, you, you can move on. I trust you. But there's, there's three key words in the Hebrew that really point this out that I want to share with you guys. Because in English, when, when you see this and you read, especially in verse 2, this day's, the, or the phrase, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. I don't, I don't know if this is what you're picturing in, in your heads, but in my head, I'm getting the idea of God saying, okay, if you want to give me something, this is what I would like it to be. And, and if that's what you're picturing, then I hate to pop your bubble, but my bubble got popped this week. That this is not really what, what God is going for. It's, it, it's really cool. So the first, the first word in there, contribution. Okay, that, that comes from a Hebrew noun um, simply meaning to lift off or to separate for a purpose. So something that was taken off of the top of something and set aside for something special. Um, that word in other places is not translated as contribution. It means offering. So what God is saying, he's not, don't just give me like something. Don't just give me like if you feel like giving me something, I'll, here's a list of things I'll take. This is not like a, a registry that God has for his people. He says, no, I, I desire an offering from you off the top, something that is of the best of what you have. I, I require this. 
And he says, okay, and just, just so you know, this is what I want. We get this long list in verses 3 through 7 of things that God would take. Precious metals, yarns, linens, animal skins, wood, oil, spices, jewelry. It's, it's a very long list. And, and there should be a question that you and I ask at this point, guys. Because if you think about who's Israel, they were in slavery for 400 years. And prior to that, if you know back in Genesis, okay, these are the families of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. They're shepherds, they're nomads, they're wanderers. How did they get all of this stuff? If you're in slavery for 400 years, and prior to that, you're a wanderer taking care of sheep, how did they get all of this stuff that God is now asking of him? Okay, that, that should be a question we ask. And, and Moses has actually already told us the answer to this, which which is fascinating. He, he knows this is coming. He tells us in Exodus 12, 36, he says, And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have whatever they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. If you guys remember when we were at that point in the story, we were saying this was Egypt repaying Israel all the wages that they had withheld from them. Right? 400 years as slaves, they were never given anything in return for their work. So Egypt is now basically repaying Israel on their way out the door. But we said it's, it's more than just paying them back money, stuff. It's, it was Egypt's way of giving dignity and value back to the people. Right? This, this idea we've talked about how we value one another based on production, but God values us because we bear his image Egypt was telling Israel, we value on your production, so let me give you all the stuff you guys should have had. This was Egypt giving Israel their worth back. And now God says, give that to me. God is, is not just asking for a, a laundry list of random things from Israel. He's telling Israel all the things that you have been given, that you were told your value is wrapped up them give them to me. I want you guys to give me what you believe your worth is, what you're being told your worth is. This is more than just a, a call to give up stuff. God says, I need you, Israel. All the things that you hold dear, all the things that you believe about who you are, give that to me. And the, this idea is reinforced in the word heart in verse 2, lave. It's a Hebrew noun that here, it, sometimes it means heart, like the organ, which would be a really odd request that, you know, it's, it's not just God saying if your gut leads you to do something, go do it. Here that word specifically means the inclinations, the resolutions, and the determinations of the will. So it's, it's heart in the sense of, like, the core of who you are. So God's not saying, you know, hey, just... If you feel like giving a gift to me, he says, from those of you who at the core of who you are want to give up what you consider your worth to be. This, this is what God is after. He's calling Israel to sacrifice what they believe their worth is at the core of who they are. And this continues in the third word, nadav, which is uh, the verb that, that shows up when it says whose heart moves him. This word is only used four times 
in the entire book of Exodus, twice here when God is asking for them to give something, and twice in chapter 35 when they're actually giving it to God. So this word is only used in context of a me at the core of who I am laying down my worth to God. Again, guys, this picture, if you put all of this together, you see God is calling his people to resolve within themselves to offer up their will, their life, their worth to him. A, a total sacrifice of all they believed they were to God. A very, very powerful picture. God says, okay, guys, I want you to be in my presence. And the very first thing he tells Moses, when Moses comes into his presence, God says, this is what it will take. I need all of you, Israel. I need all of you, Moses, in order for me to be with you. And guys, the, the picture of this sacrifice is powerful because it reminds Israel, it reminds God's people of some very core truths about who, who we are and who he is. It reminded Israel who they were to God, right? God was telling them to give up what Egypt had given them. Not because the gift was bad, right? God is not pounding Israel for having taken stuff out of Egypt. The stuff itself was not the issue, Okay. What God was doing is he's saying, as long as you hold on to that, that is going to tell you what your worth is. Israel, as long as you hold on to what Egypt gave you, Egypt gave that to you and told you, this is what we think you're worth. Israel, as long as you hold on to that, you will not truly know who you are because you're still seeing yourself in terms of your production. Church, we, we have the same struggles today, the different things that we allow people to tell us who we are. God says, as, as we are clinging to that, as we are holding on to that, if it is anything other than his image, then we are, we're missing out. We are missing out. It is not a helpful narrative for us to listen to. So when God is calling his people to, to make this sacrifice, it's, it's just going back to this idea of trust. He says, trust that you are who I say that you are. You are valuable because you bear my image. You do not need the stuff of Egypt to tell you what you are worth. Your worth comes from me and I value you and I want you to be with me. Something else that reminded Israel, it reminded them of who God was uh, to them. You can imagine just another reason they'd want to hold on to this stuff. One of the promises throughout the Old Testament was that Israel was going to be this great nation, right? That God came to Abraham, said, I'm going to make your descendants great. You're going to spread out. You're going to be more than the grains of sand of the earth. You're, you're going to become a great name and a great nation. If Israel has just been freed from slavery and they're totally on their own, you would think, okay, how would they be able to be a great nation, God, if you take away all of this stuff from them, right? This is their wood, their jewelry, their spices, their oils, everything of value to them that they could actually use to make a great name and a great nation. God, you're asking for them to give it up? Like this, this question, you'd be like, God, why, why did you tell us we were going to be great and give us all this stuff and then ask for it all back? God is, again, he's showing his people, look, if I can give you this on your way out of Egypt, what, what more am I capable of doing for you over the rest of the life? It is, it is a point where God is telling his people, look, again, you don't need this. You have me. I, I am your God. You are my people. That's, that's enough. 
And guys, the sacrifice I love in verse 8, and, and I, I underlined this in my Bible, which I want you to know is a big deal for me. I, I have an issue of underlining things in Scripture. I mean, not that I think you can't do it. It just feels weird for me to write in books. Um, I had to get over that for seminary. But I have, a, I have a daughter who's under the age of three that does not share the same uh, hesitation of drawing in books. And she, she drew on, on this exact section of scripture, and she underlined, and I made a note, she did this last April, uh, she underlined verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God says, look, this is what the sacrifice is for, right? When you give these things up over to me, it is so that you, are, you can build a dwelling place for me to come and be with you. So God is, is giving his people this picture, if you trust that you are who I say you are, and I am who I've said I am, then you will lay down your lives for me because that will allow me to be with you, guys. And, and this is the call that you and I have today as followers of Christ. I mean, you, you hear us use the language of you know, asking Jesus to be our Savior and Lord. I mean, to do that requires us to lay our lives down, right? To ask Jesus to be our Savior, that's to say, God, we are, we are broken from you. Something is not right here. I, I, I'm broken, and I need you to fix this. And, and to ask Jesus to be our Lord is to say, God, not only do I want you just to fix me, I, I need you, period. Like, you are the head of my life. So this, this language that we're used to hearing in the church, it is, it is this language of, of sacrificing life, of laying our lives down. And God says this is required, not optional. This is required for me to be with you. So what's the, the other part of the equation? What, what makes it worth it? And this is where God goes in the rest of the chapter. The, the three different things that he tells Israel build, the ark, the table, the lampstand, all of these point to God saying, look, you build these things because remember, if you sacrifice to me in this way, here's what I'm bringing to you in return. Okay, So we'll take them one by one. What is the ark? What does the ark teach us? We see in verse 17 that the ark has something on top of it called the, the mercy seat. Uh, your translations may vary because it's just an odd Hebrew word that even the best scholars aren't really exactly sure what it, what it means. But mercy seat is the closest we have. It, it literally means place of atonement. So something about why the ark was needed, it was the place where God was going to come and accept the sacrifice of the people, to accept them into his presence. Okay, So you've got that going on the ark. You see that what's going inside the ark... Uh, which is helpful to see here because you don't see it in Indiana Jones. They just take off the top and they melt. In verses 16 and 21, the ark held the testimony that I shall give you. Okay, there were certain artifacts that went inside the ark to teach the people this is who God is and this is what he's, what he's going to do. And I'll, I'll read what those are later, but it, it held the testimony. In verse 22, this place above the mercy seat in the ark was where God was going to meet with his people and continue to reveal himself to them. So what the ark is doing is it's, it's the place where God is going to make his people right with him and then continue to show what being right with him will look like. God, so we would say God is promising his righteousness to his people, that when they make this sacrifice of their life to him, he will bring them 
his righteousness. And he does so in an immediate sense, right? I'm going to accept your sacrifice right here. And for the future, I'm going to keep showing you more and more of who I am. Uh, guys, that might sound a little bit like the already, not yet. I told you that tension shows up everywhere in Scripture. This is like the fourth week in a row we're seeing this. It's, it's there. All right, let's, let's move to the table, okay? Verses 23 through 30 talk about this beautiful, ornate, wooden, gold table that, uh, that holds, we're told, plates and dishes for incense, flagons and bowls for drink offerings, and the bread of the presence. Uh, these are all pictures of fellowship, right? It, the, the incense was something Israel did to call upon God's spirit. They say, God, I, we want your spirit to come be with us as we're offering up this, this fragrant offering for you. And, and then the symbols of the bread and the cups, I mean, that's, that's like setting the table for a meal. And we talked about the meals last week and how Hebrews did not eat meals with people they were not right with. So the fact that God wants them to build a table so they can always have a meal with him, God's saying, man, I, I'm always going to be there with you. If you are sacrificing your life to me, I'm always, I'm always going to be there with you. I'm always ready to have this meal with you. And then the lampstand. Guys, this, this one's honestly my favorite. Um, I, I, don't, I do not know what a calyx is, okay? I did not know this week. Those of you who are gardeners, Hugh, you might know what a calyx is, but you probably have different words for it. I had no clue what a calyx is. And to the best of my knowledge, it's like the, the base of the flower. It's like part of the bud before it's bloomed. It's, it's, it's just a piece of the flower. So as you're, you're reading that in your word, if you're seeing calyx, maybe your translations threw you a bone and gave you a different word. But it, it just, it's just part of the flower. So we're given this, this description of this lampstand that's in the shape of a tree. Specifically, we're told it's an almond tree and it's got like buds and flowers and all these things. It's, it's, it's beautiful, sure, but the details feel very odd and very specific. And if, if you're ever reading through the Old Testament in particular and you're coming upon places that seem very odd and very specific, there's, there's probably a reason for it, okay? So we did some digging with this this week and there's, yeah, there's, there's some cool stuff going on here. Why almond trees? In the Middle East, the almond tree is the first thing that blooms, okay? Those trees bloom anywhere from late January into the early weeks of February. Uh, you guys here know stuff would not survive if it bloomed that early because it's still susceptible to another foot of snow that we seem to get in March. So if something blooms that early, it's, it's kind of taking a risk, right? Well, in the Middle Eastern culture, they bloomed really early, and it was the sign that something else is coming, right? Once the almond tree started to bloom, people went, oh, then, then the winter must be getting close to being over, so the rest of spring is coming. It's this imagery of there's a promise that something later is coming. And so the almond tree in the Old Testament is often linked to God telling his people, I'm about to fulfill my promise, Okay. All these things that I've told you about who I am and what I want of you guys, I am, I am quick to fulfill. I do not delay in fulfilling my promises. So that's why it's the almond tree. The purpose of a lampstand is to give light, right? Most of you guys figured that out pretty quick. Light is a, a well-known Old Testament reference to life. 
So God is saying, I'm quick to fulfill my promises and what is coming is life. And if there's, if there's anything specific about this life, I, just think about your knowledge of, of Genesis. Okay, right at the very beginning in the creation story. Where, where else do you see the language of a, of a tree being linked to life? Many of you guys know that the tree, that they were one of the trees in the center of the garden was the tree of life. And from this tree flowed rivers that God took care of all his creation from. So this, this lampstand is, is so cool, guys. It is teaching God's people, I'm quick to fulfill my promise. And my promise is I'm bringing you into this life with me that I made for you at the beginning, but that you've been broken off from. This, this lampstand was an ever-present reminder that God was at work bringing them back, bringing them back into life with him. So you've got all of this taking place inside, inside of the tabernacle that God says, as you are sacrificing your life to me, as you are laying this down for me, here's what I'm bringing to you. Here's my end of the bargain. God says, I'm bringing you my righteousness. You're going to be right with me. I'm bringing you my presence. I myself am going to be with you. And he says, and I'm bringing you my life, right? That I'm not just going to be next to you, close to you. I'm going to be within you. And, and this is, guys, this is not just Jordan, I promise, making some stuff up. There is, I, I love, because it makes my job a lot easier when Scripture interprets Scripture. And I'm going to read for you the first 15 verses of Hebrews chapter 9, because the author points back to this very point right here. He says this, now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent, or a tabernacle, was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, which we've looked at. It is called the most holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, which we've talked about. And what goes inside the ark in which was a golden urn holding the manna, which was earlier in Exodus, right, that they kept this jar of the bread that God brought as a proof to say, hey, God is always providing for his people. That was inside the ark. Aaron's staff that had budded, we'll get to that later because that's just another fascinating story. And the tablets of the covenant, so all this that Moses is recording, all of this went inside the ark. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So even the author of Hebrews is like, you guys know what I'm referencing, right? You don't need me to continue to go into all the blueprints. Okay, good. So the author of Hebrews continues. He says, with all of this in mind, he then explains in the next several verses, 6 through 10, about how uh, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section and perform their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. So basically, the fact that the Old Testament system, it, it was pointing to something better. Pointing. What's this better? Hebrews 9.11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, 
Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Guys, this, the author of Hebrews points back to this very section of Scripture and says this, this is pointing to Christ. He says this is the same calling that Jesus gave to his disciples. It's not a new thing to Jesus. Jesus was just fulfilling what the Old Testament was saying, that what God desired of his people for them to be in his presence was a sacrifice of their life. And when they did that, God said, here's what's coming. My righteousness, my presence, my life. You will be with me. I will be with you. Yeah, this, is, this is not Jordan just making some, some symbolism connections. I love when the New Testament says, man, the Old Testament got it right. You guys just all missed it. And the New Testament in Hebrews took it a step further and said, and guys, you have this in Jesus. That when you offer your lives to God through Christ, God's righteousness, God's presence, God's life, it is given to you through me. Jesus is this new covenant. So what do we do with this? I have, I have one takeaway for us today, church. I believe what, what God is after as he's showing this to his people is he's teaching us to think about our faith in terms of covenant, not in terms of the temporal. And what I mean by that, a very easy way to illustrate it is just think about your calendar for the week, okay? What do you have going on in the span of a week, right? If, if your calendar looks like the Microsoft Outlook calendar that some of us have at work, it, it's like blocks of time throughout the week of different things we're doing things at different places, right? Most of our calendars are very temporal. They have a start time and an end time and a goal associated with like whatever I'm doing during this time frame, right? But there are other things you and I do during the week that don't really fit into a start time, end time, goal kind of box, right? You and I are, are husbands and wives, parents, children, siblings, like that, that doesn't, friends, that doesn't necessarily just get Put on the calendar, right? Most of you guys, I'm, and I'm assuming, okay, so you guys can tell me if I'm wrong after this. I'm assuming nobody has written at the top of their calendar today, be a good spouse or be a good friend, right? That, that's just, it is true, right? That's part of who we are. We just don't think about, but that's like actually something that I should be putting on my calendar to do in the span of a day, okay? Because we we think about things in terms of start and goal. 
God is calling his people to think about terms of covenant. Be with me. It, not a, a transaction, but God saying, if, if I expect this of you, I will give this to you as well. Okay, and, and why, guys, why this matters? And, and I, I've, I've prayed a lot about this and I've seen this in my own life. I'll tell you, when, we, when you and I think about our faith purely in terms of start and goal, there's typically one of three base feelings that comes out of that, okay? It's either anger, indifference, or guilt, okay? So here's, here's what I mean. If we, just teasing the calendar imagery out a little bit further, if you do everything on your calendar, right? At, you get to the end of the day, you have finished everything that you set out to do, what do you feel? I'd say for most people, it's indifference, right? There's a little bit of satisfaction, like, yes, I got through everything I needed to, but uh, as the old adage goes that my bosses uh, who have told me, uh, you don't typically get rewarded for doing your job, right? That there's, there's not much satisfaction given. You know, there's no, like, parade to say, oh, good, you did everything you said you were going to do. No, you did your job. Excellent. Here's your paycheck. Go home, come back, do your job again tomorrow, right? It's at best, it's just kind of this indifference, I finished the list, right? If you don't finish the list, what do you feel? Usually either anger, right? Somebody got in my way, some, some problem came up and it kept me from finishing my list, or just guilt. Like, man, there wasn't anything that kept me from doing it. I should have been able to finish this and I didn't, okay? And, and guys, this spills over into our faith, okay? So, so much of our wrestling with God comes out of anger, indifference, or guilt. For, for me personally, I, I've had all three of these in the past, like the past week, let alone the past month, year. Um, just to give you the examples of this, so, so I, I spend usually about the first 20 minutes of my day just journaling prayers, okay? Just my way of saying, okay, God, I, I want to show up and be here, and I want to see you at work during the day. I've, I've noticed that when I go throughout my day, if things don't go as well as I would hope them to, then sometimes I go back to God and I'm like, okay, God, uh, I showed up and I spent time in prayer with you this morning and you, really like you're letting this happen today? Like there's, there's a little bit of frustration in there of God, I have put in my end of the bargain, what, why aren't you holding up yours, okay? Some, sometimes we wrestle with that in our faith. Sometimes I see God actually answer prayer Right? And there's like that moment of celebration, like, thank you, God, thank you for taking care of this. And then sometimes we go, well, but, you know, God, I did ask for that to happen. And you are a God that answers prayer. So, like, I'm grateful, but I also kind of expected you to do that. Right? So, so my enthusiasm is tempered a little bit by indifference. By, God, I did pray, and thank you for answering it but now it's just on to the next thing I need prayer for. The, the guilt, I mean, guilt can look like a bunch of different things. Guilt for me looks like I used to spend, I mean, this was back before I was driving the bus early in the morning. I'd spend about 45 minutes in the Word, like taking really deep notes. And then when you get up at like 6.30 to go to work, then that 45 minutes means you're getting up closer to 5.30 which is just really early. And then if you have small children that also like to get up early in the morning, then you're like 
getting up closer to 4.30 to try, and most people are not wired to be awake at 4.30 in the morning. So that kind of fell off the wagon pretty quick. So then I wrestle with guilt of like, oh man, God, like I used to be able to relate with you in this way and I just don't feel like I'm in the season to do that. Now I feel guilty that I can't do what I expect to do. Anger, indifference, guilt. Guys, I would, I would not be surprised if, if all of us in here have at least one of those in the way that we relate with God. And I think it, is, it, it makes a world of a difference when we start to picture our faith in terms of the covenantal instead of in terms of the temporal. And what God is doing in this, this chapter here, we are seeing is he's bringing it back to the covenant, right? He's saying, this is what it takes for you to be with me, Israel. I'm not looking for you to just be doing things. I am looking for you to give me you. That God is not after Israel to do something. God is just after Israel. And why this is powerful, why God just keeps coming back to this. And you say, Jordan, you've said this like every week the past four weeks. Why God keeps coming back to this is because his people were in slavery under a system that told them their value was measured in their production, what they did. You and I live in a world where we are measured by our production, what we do. God keeps coming back to this image to say, that is not how I see you. That is not how I measure your worth. That is not how I created you to be. And church, I know, I know we're hearing some of the same things, but I, I encourage you guys, please hear this. That you and I wrestle with our faith from what the world puts on in a, in a bunch of different ways that God says, that's not me. That's not what I told you. That's not how I made you. That's not how I see you, okay? And I encourage you, just, just read throughout Scripture. See, see how God uses the language of describing his relationship to the church as himself, Christ, and the church as his bride, right? Not a, not a, a servant relationship in the sense of God telling you what to do, but a covenant that he's after all of the church. What's the other description in the New Testament? You see a lot. It's either Christ and the church is a bride and groom. What are we to God? His children. Covenant. So I encourage you guys, as we close today, I, it, is, it would be good and helpful for us this week to just be honest with God about, God, if I'm looking at my relationship with you, where do I see anger? Where do I see indifference? And where do I see guilt? Am I angry with you because I have not seen a prayer answered or I'm not able to do something that I've asked you for the help doing? Uh, where do I see indifference? Like, God, I, I'm just, I really struggle with showing up to church. I really struggle to tithe. Or I just, I struggle to do something in my relationship with you because I'm like, does this really make a difference? Is this really worth it? Um, and just see, God, where, where do we have guilt? I mean, I, I can't tell you, so, so often we're like, I just, I just don't feel like I'm doing what I, I ought to be doing. Guys, if, if there are pieces that we are associating with faith that are leading us to anger, to indifference, or guilt, that's not of God, okay? That, that is not what he desires of his people. That is not how he's teaching his people to be.
And so I would encourage you guys to just just spend some time this week. It, it, it doesn't, when I say spend some time, I'm not picturing like you gotta go off to a secluded place, okay? You have lives, you have kids, you have jobs. I'm not saying just totally take yourself out of all of that. But you can be thinking about as you're doing something like, okay, God, like, what have I been angry about with you lately over? Just when we recognize these guys, we, we are able to actually call this out to God and say, God, I, I know this is not of you. This is not part of living in, in his presence. Because we're seeing that when we sacrifice, when we, we lay our lives down to God, he promises his righteousness, his presence, and his life. That is not anger, that is not guilt, that is not indifference, that is not what he's after with us. So spend some time just, I would encourage you guys to think, to piece that together this week. And know that I will be doing that too, because as I'm telling you guys where I'm seeing this in me, this is, you know, I saw this this week, I'm going to have to wrestle with that this coming week. So as, as we're as we're thinking about this, as we move into a time of communion together, us, our act of symbolizing our fellowship with God, um, I encourage you guys to pray with me. Say, oh Lord, I hang on thee. I see, I believe, I live when thy will, not mine, is done. I can plead nothing in myself in regard to any worthiness and grace, in regard to thy providence thy promises, but only thy good pleasure. If thy mercy make me poor and vile, blessed be thou. Prayers arising from my needs are preparations for future mercies. Help me to honor thee by believing before I feel. For great is the sin if I make feeling a cause of faith. Show me what sins hide thee from me and eclipse thy love. Help me to humble myself for past evils, to be resolved to walk with more care. For if I do not walk holy before thee, God, how can I be assured of my salvation? It is the meek and the humble who are shown thy covenant, know thy will, are pardoned and healed, who by faith depend and rest on grace, who are sanctioned and quickened, who evidence thy love. God, help me to pray in faith and so find thy will by leaning hard on thy rich, free mercy, by believing that will give what thou hast promised. Strengthen me to pray with the conviction that whatever I receive is thy gift, so that I may pray until prayer be granted. Teach me to believe that all degrees of mercy arise from several degrees of prayer, that when faith is begun, it is imperfect and must grow as chapped ground opens wider and wider until the rain comes. So shall I wait thy will, pray for it to be done, and by thy grace become fully obedient. Amen.